As Iyanla Van Zant once said, it's important that we share our experiences with other people. Your story will heal you and your story will heal somebody else. At Project Sleep, we believe that your stories matter, which is why we train people with sleep disorders on how to share their stories through our Rising Voices program. This Rising Voices podcast series features a variety of firsthand stories from people living with sleep disorders around the world. Each person's story offers unique and important insights. Welcome to Project Sleep's podcast. Project Sleep is a 501c3 nonprofit organization dedicated to raising awareness and advocating for sleep health, sleep equity, and sleep disorders. I'm your host, Julie Flygar. We're so glad you're here as we work together towards making sleep cool. On this podcast, all guests express their own opinions. While medical diagnoses and treatment options are discussed for educational purposes, this information should not be taken as medical advice. Each person's experience is so unique, which is why it's so important to always consult your own medical team when making decisions about your own health. If you haven't done so yet, please hit the subscribe button so you never miss a Project Sleep podcast episode. And if you enjoy this podcast, please leave us a rating or review wherever you listen so that we can reach more listeners and raise more awareness. Hello, everyone. We have a very special guest with us, Rachel Miyazaki. She is a production coordinator and houseplant enthusiast living in Seattle, originally from Hawaii. She has struggled with sleep disorders since childhood, and now as a rising voices of narcolepsy writer, wants to advocate for fellow people with narcolepsy, especially students and employees. So with that, Rachel, we're so excited to have you read your essay. Great, thank you so much. Um, so this piece is called The Awakening, and it was originally published in Brain Mill Press's Voices series. I'm 27 years old and have never had a good night's sleep. From childhood through early adulthood, I struggled to fall asleep at night and fought to stay awake during the day. At its most extreme, my body would demand 12-hour sleep-wake cycles, refusing to wake up until 3 p.m. and finally caving in to sleep at 3 a.m. Whether it was blamed on technology, caffeine, or another culprit, family, friends, teachers, and medical providers were convinced that it was me choosing to be this way. Part of me believed it too. TV shows and movies reinforced these stereotypes in my mind. Yet, part of me found flaws in their accusations. The spontaneous burst of nocturnal energy started long before I ever took a sip of soda or owned a cell phone. When I turned 23, I started to notice a shift. I began to never feel completely awake. Other chronic illnesses had prevented me from fulfilling my longtime dream of volunteering overseas for the Peace Corps. So I did the next best thing, work with international students at a university. My body can't handle humid tropics or arid deserts, but a rural college town would be smooth sailing, or so I thought. On one of my first days, I attended an early morning meeting with staff from another department. We started off with introductions and I enthusiastically scribbled each person's details in my notebook, eager to foster this new partnership. Then I felt it. Unbearable sleepiness crept on my body, weighing my head and eyelids down like tar. I wasn't sure what was worse, admitting defeat by putting my head down into my arms on the table to sleep or enduring the awkward ebb and flow of my head with my eyes rolled back and my mouth hanging open. I figured that, at least in the second case, I was somewhat upright and attentive, though probably appearing more like a propped-up zombie than a well-meaning professional. 
This was my wake-up call. I knew something was definitely wrong. It's hard enough to be taken seriously in the workplace as a woman of color spawned in, in the 90s. I'm fueled to surpass expectations by every clickbaity gripe about millennials on my newsfeed, every microaggression I swallowed behind a forced smile. Embarrassment, frustration, and desperation drove me to seek out answers from various doctors and test quirky tips from online listicles. I had cut out caffeine due to the onset of an unrelated heart condition. I tried wearing orange tinted glasses to block out wakefulness promoting blue light from electronics, but mostly just made me feel like a rebel pilot from Star Wars. Nothing worked. I would be so tired that the times that I could manage to call or email in to my supervisor to request a sick day, my third speech and nonsensical texts led them to jokingly say that I sounded drunk. Coincidentally, the onset of my chronic illnesses had led me to become intolerant of both caffeine and alcohol. After multiple misdiagnoses, two overnight sleep studies, two afternoon nap studies, and 23 years of self-doubt, I was diagnosed with narcolepsy. It took an average of seven minutes for me to fall asleep during the nap series. In one nap, I fell asleep after just 12 seconds. I had also experienced early rapid eye movement or REM sleep in two of the nap sessions, one after five and a half minutes and another after just four. To put this into perspective, it typically takes 90 minutes for a person to reach REM sleep after sleep onset. My narcolepsy diagnosis was a double-edged sword. It was validating because I finally had proof, albeit just a medical term, to validate my struggles with sleep to those that had doubted me. I could get a doctor's note to request the combinations at work. Yet, I soon realized that a simple diagnosis wouldn't magically make the world empathize with me or work with my new lifestyle. I remember being stuck on the word narcolepsy when my doctor first diagnosed me. The only times I'd heard it before were in comedic situations. A teenager face-planting face into the role of Captain Crunch before school, a person slumping down into their chair mid-conversation with a friend. It was more of an old wives' tale rather than a potential reality. I can see the gears turning in people's heads when I tell them I have narcolepsy. I feel like it's a word that most folks have heard but never really processed. Narcolepsy is more complex than extreme bouts of sleep, and people with narcolepsy are certainly more than running gags. Sleep can be emotionally and physically draining for people like me. Some aspects of sleep can even be traumatizing. Recurrent vivid nightmares throughout the night have left me feeling paranoid and jumpy well and two hours after waking up for the day. Sleep paralysis is another symptom straight out of a horror film. I'm awake and blinking, but I can't move my body, speak, or breathe. Some folks see demons or hear scary voices when experiencing sleep paralysis. The unfortunate reality is that I have an unrequited love with sleep. I crave it constantly, but only receive fractured, unrefreshing sleep in return. Looking back on my life, I realized how little sleep hygiene was encouraged outside of family and doctors reprimanding me for my personal issues. In elementary school, we had school ride, fun run, fundraisers, and jump rope competitions. Messaging on milk cartons, cereal boxes, and snacks emphasize each respective product's contribution to a balanced diet. National campaigns promote physical exercise and conscious eating habits to people of various ages and backgrounds. Why doesn't sleep carry that same weight? But I have had a quicker, smoother route to diagnosis, treatment, and accommodations with more community education and societal advocacy. What I had been spared from years of feeling like a delusional, worthless burden. I had struggled with depression and anxiety since adolescence. 
At first, I blamed my chronic illnesses for further aggravating my mental illnesses. I resented my nervous system for its inability to function properly, especially at the so-called prime of my life. I wasn't one to say no to adventure. I wasn't one to flake out on plans, and I wasn't one to show up late to work. I had become critical of myself for becoming the antithesis of the values I grew up with. As I became more involved with disability rights, I realized that my embarrassment and frustration stemmed from the ableist structures and perspectives I encountered and internalized. Despite being regularly recognized for my initiative, efficiency, and innovation at work, I would be patronized for showing up 30 minutes late for sleeping at my desk during my lunch breaks. I hadn't known about my rights to reasonable accommodations, like flex time, restructured work hours, or nap breaks, until I did my own research years later. Family would chastise me for spending family gatherings hidden away sleeping on a couch, rather than acknowledging how much effort it took for me to get up, get ready, show up, and say my rounds of sincere hellos in the first place. Friendships were the most painful gripes. Longtime friends grew uncomfortable with the new fine print that came with hanging out. If we went to a concert, I'd need reserved seating, so no more mosh pits for me. If we went to a bar or coffee shop, I'd need to sip with water. If we planned a day of sightseeing, I need to schedule nap breaks in the afternoon. I'd still be excited to spend time together, but these minor accommodations were deemed boring or inconvenient. If you think about it, many of the things our culture views as professional or otherwise socially acceptable are unnecessary, ableist, and classist. If there's one positive aspect of having chronic illnesses, it's that they've allowed me to become better at filtering out pleading friends, silly roles, and shallow activities, to prioritize the people, values, and hobbies that are worth my limited waking hours and energy. Since the onset of my narcolepsy, I've devoted more time to self-discovery and pursuing what fits my new lifestyle. I used to love the thrill of the outdoors, especially traveling to national parks across the US. Of all the travels I've had, it's the natural scenic areas that are most cherished and ingrained in my memory. From the humbling giant sequoias of Muir Woods, to the tranquil, almost surreal lotus patties of Cambodia. It's challenging for me to leave my house outside of work obligations these days because of my chronic illnesses. However, I found that I can bring the outdoors in by attending to houseplants. Many people admire plants for their visual, pure, or alleged purifying qualities. I appreciate them for their diversity and tenacity. Contrary to popular belief, many plants can be rehabilitated and eventually flourish with the right care and environment. You often see mushy succulents, ratty ferns, and droopy begonias all bunched together on the same rack in the garden section of a big box store. You'd be surprised how many of those sad, worn-out plants on the cell rack can actually be salvaged. Like humans, plants are not one-size-fit-all. Even within the same family, different plants have different needs. If you picture someone taking care of a house plant, the image that pops into most people's mind is someone watering it and maybe placing it near a sunny window. Like diet and exercise for humans, there tends to be a limited focus on water and light. The appreciation and corresponding care for each plant's unique light, water, soil, aeration, humidity, and feeding needs allows them to thrive. It may be different or a bit more work than what you're used to, but there's nothing like spotting a tiny new growth on a houseplant that you put effort into. This observation helps me push through the times where I feel like I'm being dramatic, inconvenient, or selfish due to my narcolepsy symptoms. I can thrive as long as my basic needs, however unique they may be, are met, and the environment I'm in is conducive to my growth.
People with narcolepsy can achieve great things. I need our families, friends, schools, workplaces, and communities to recognize and support that potential. Wakefulness does not equal worth. Yay! <laughs> oh, wow. Such a powerful essay. <laughs> Thank you so much for sharing it with Thank us you. and read so beautifully. I told Rachel when she read this during our practice round the other day that um, she had the voice for, uh, you know, essay reading. Uh, and <laughs> I was jealous in that if I ever did it, wrote another book myself, I would like to hire her to be the reader because um, she just did such a beautiful job reading. So actually, as I learned when I did my own audiobook, it's quite an art. Yes. <laughs> so, yeah. so great job, Rachel. It's just, Thank you. Um, although I already loved your essay, hearing you read it is such a special experience. So let's see, you currently work in um, disability rights video production, which is so super cool. <laughs> um, can you tell us a little bit more about that? Yeah. I'm a production coordinator with Rooted in Rights, which is the creative media team for Disability Rights Washington, which is the protection and advocacy agency for the state of Washington. So basically, the Disability Rights Washington is a legal team uh, that advocates for the rights of folks with disabilities. And Rooted in Rights uh, helps produce media, mostly video content, but also social media content um, for those advocacy efforts. And how did you get involved with that? Uh, I actually didn't know disability rights was a thing until I started. So it was like a really, I'm very fortunate to have stumbled into that. You know, before, like I mentioned, no one ever, when I grew up, no one ever talked about disability rights or even accommodations. So, you know, discovering this whole new world of people and this whole new identity that you can claim and be proud of is really special for me. Oh, it's so, so cool. So you fit in so many different points here and it was interesting to reread it now kind of like in the wake of COVID-19 and you know how much life has seemed to change so dramatically like so quickly for um, people in America um, and so I, I thought that point about how you talked about how you had loved traveling so much um, that was a big part of your life and that you weren't able to do that because um, you know in, that, in your case because of your illnesses um, but you found this love of houseplants. But then you go and um, make this incredible analogy. And I'm sure everyone did catch it already, but for those that are full <laughs> slow, um, because I, I read it a few times to realize how you weave together basically this beautiful point you made earlier about sleep and how sleep isn't important enough out there in society, which, yeah. <laughs> and then your point about how you could thrive, but you needed to have with accommodations. And so you kind of weave both of those points back into the houseplant analogy. How did you come up with that? <laughs> yeah, it was, it wasn't, you know, it was, I think, partway through the writing process, you know, first thinking about the main points that I wanted to include, but you have to find some way to make it interesting and to hook people in and keep their attention. And there's houseplants everywhere in my house, but yeah, you know, even in reflecting on my personal time in caring for these plants and like, you know, everyone jokes about, oh, I have a black thumb, but it's really, it just takes trial and error. Like even for me, you know, I feel pretty comfortable with houseplants now, but it took me a lot of research and a lot of, a lot of uh, sick and dead plants <laughs> to really, you know, it just takes the effort. You can't just expect a plant to just 
be perfect or you can't expect yourself to be perfect. It just, it's our connection to like taking care of house plants that I enjoy the most. It's not necessarily like, oh, look at this pretty plant. You know, it's the work it, I put into it. Yeah, well, it is just an incredible analogy. Um, <laughs> when we were um, talking before, uh, we also kind of talked about this point about how, which resonated with me personally too, in you know prior jobs, now that I work full-time for Project Sleep, I get to, I was only working <laughs> from home, which is quite great for me, um, not commuting across greater Los Angeles to a job anymore. Um, but that this time with COVID-19 all at once, we see a lot of more people able to work from home than ever before. Mm-hmm. Um, so I don't know if you had anything else you wanted to say about that experience for you personally, or you know what you've seen for different people. Yeah, I feel I feel like I've seen a lot of other people at chronic illnesses like just grown at how like quickly reasonable accommodations for everyone across the board was was implemented when you know when we asked so that we can do the equal work. It's not a, it's not a privilege, you know. It's just so we can do the same work that everyone else does. It's a no. It's impossible, you know. And I think about yeah the jobs that I've had where I couldn't work from home or flex time wasn't a thing and it made it so much harder just to show up you know not even like the days that I could show up my work would be great but the days that it was really hard then my work not because I had less effort or for some reason my skill set went down it's just you know that simple thing of can I work from home yeah Oh man. Well, I <laughs> trade war stories of um, past jobs. I remember I did have one supervisor, probably the best supervisor I ever had, who like told me one day when I said, sorry, I'm late, blah, 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 you know. And she said, sweetheart, just come here when you feel well enough to. Mm-hmm. And the way she said it made me feel like this complete trust that she actually meant it, that I could just show up when I felt well enough to. Mm-hmm. Um, that was just, you know, such a game changer. So mm-hmm. Um, there's wonderful people out there in some cases, but then also, you know, this time we're seeing, yeah, like what you said, uh, reasonable accommodations and being able to work from home. Mm-hmm. So let's hope it lasts, you know, yes. hopefully now people realize this is possible. Um, and so that people with um, disabilities will be able to be able to do more like this going forward forever. What was your experience like as far as getting reactions from the community or, or um, from, you know, your own friends and family? Yeah. So Obviously, I shared it in the narcolepsy groups I'm in, and you know, lots of people also resonated well, well with it. Um, shared it with my parents, and I think it was the first time they really understood my day-to-day life and like everything, not just recently, but from childhood and all those, you know, cliches about pulling the kid out of bed because they won't wake up for school. Like it's not because I stayed up all night playing video games; it's because it's they literally can't wake up. Um, my mom like thanked me and she was crying and but it's nice to finally you know to have people that you're close to and have been such a big part of your life finally you know understand what you're going through and you know it shouldn't take me going to the little details about how difficult it is for people to care but I think this is a great opportunity because you know people don't it's a sad but it's the reality people kind of block out the general day-to-day complaints, but when it's put in a way that's digestible for them and, you know, the analogies make it easier for them to understand, I think that helps a lot. Yeah. Plus, 
there's like such a, I think a difference between, you just never can be anyone else's shoes. So I, when I wrote my book, I, people that were very close to me during that time said when they read it, they just had no idea of all the stuff, you know, (laughs) like I just don't, even when I, people that I felt that I was close to and that actually even got it, you know, (laughs) and then they read the book and they said, oh my God, I still didn't even realize (laughs) all of it, you know, that you just don't always tell everyone every part of your life, because even I think as a coping mechanism, we just try to like go on, you know? as opposed to even like take the time. Um, wow. Okay. Well, I love that you got those responses. Um, mm-hmm. That makes me so happy. Uh, we have a question from uh, Facebook that says, do you think treatment is key to your success? Like, you know, being able to work, I guess. Yeah. I, I'm on um, Waypoint is promoting medication and one that helps me get actual restless sleep at nighttime, but you know, even those still have their drawbacks and the number of treatments are really limited still for narcolepsy. You know, one of the hard things is, you know, even though the wake medicine helps me be able to wake up and stay awake during the daytime, my body gets used to it really quickly. So, you know, I can work full-time nine to five Monday through Friday usually, but that requires me to sleep literally almost all day from Saturday through Sunday. So it's hard because part of me is like, you know, is this living, you know, if I can't have a social life, if I can't, you know, do much around the house, you know, not even for others, but just like personal care. Um, But yeah, I think there definitely needs to be more attention on treatments, whether that's medications or whatever, uh, in addition to what can we do now for people that are, that have narcolepsy, whether that's accommodations or um, just spreading awareness. Yeah. How has your journey been as far as managing narcolepsy and other conditions? Is that like been a challenge or, I mean, I just assume it is, but yeah, it's kind of difficult because, you know, the other condition I have is POTS, which basically means my heart rate skyrockets usually when I'm in an upright position, but also randomly. So for, you know, when I have sleep attacks, it's helpful for me to be having some light source uh, particularly naturally light source and like walking around to help keep me more awake but walking around a lot makes me feel dizzy really quickly and you know I have sensory sensitivities so sometimes light makes me feel worse or things like that so it's hard to you know and then people are like oh I thought that you couldn't do this or thought this was bad for you but it's like bodies are weird I don't know I don't even know what my body wants sometimes <laughs> and yeah that's the thing too like I feel like part of me is like if I explain how my body is to someone that they'll just hold me to that when you know some days narcolepsy in itself is weird you know some things sometimes I can't sleep which is mm-hmm. you know doesn't really make sense for narcolepsy but yeah I, that's why I think it's important for people to just believe people you know when they say that they need something or say that they can't do something and something isn't comfortable for them amen to that that is <laughs> so so true um and resonates and so the, the importance of getting voices out there like mm-hmm. yours um so people know the diversity of experiences too because often like maybe you even feel alone in that like oh yeah like i can't sleep but then a lot of people actually can't with narcolepsy but who knew because no one was talking about it before yeah. <laughs> you know so i was wondering also like do you think like with the 
how did you get connected to the chronic illness community or even Project Sleep and Rising Voices? What was that? Because I know you had the disability rights, you know, that you kind of fell into that, but did you get connected with the chronic illness community on social media? How did that all come about? <laughs> Yeah, social media was, I don't know where I would be without it <laughs> as an introvert. It's really helpful for me to just like meet people and stuff, but finding groups with people that have narcolepsy and groups of people that have chronic illnesses has been like life, literally life-changing for me because I don't know many people with either narcolepsy or my other conditions in real life. And just to have other folks that genuinely get what you're talking about, like you don't have to say like, explain your whole condition and your backstory like they just get it uh, and you know even things like I worry about in the future like there's a group that I found that's like parenting with narcolepsy like even like pregnancy and how do you do that as a parent like kids are so <laughs> energetic and you know I can barely ha I barely have energy for myself but I'm seeing that there are parents that are able to do this and you know can thrive like you talked about is really helpful you know especially with that anxiety of feeling like you're alone and feeling like there's no answers there's no hope and yeah and then how did you find Project Sleep and Rising Voices? I think I was just googling like you know there's lots of advocacy organizations that are more for like clinicians you know that have conferences more for clinicians and things like that but I was looking for like organizations that actually help patients and individuals with narcolepsy advocate and just meet other folks with narcolepsy and yeah stumbled upon Project Sleep and thought it was really cool. <laughs> hey, so, glad. <laughs> so glad you did. So I do have one last question for you, uh, which is, do you have any, um, kind of a fun one, um, do you have <laughs> any favorite stories about a particular plant that you brought back to life or any advice for people like myself? I have had multiple plants in this apartment. I've been able to keep one alive so far, knock on wood. Uh, it's a snake plant, but I just wanted to hear a little bit if you had any more advice or stories about plants. I feel like for people that, you know, people are like, oh, cacti are so easy or whatever. I have the hardest time with cacti and air plants. <laughs> I think, yeah, it's a misconception. I think if you're starting out, uh, devil's ivy or pothos are really easy they can grow in water they can grow in dirt you can neglect them in the office I've seen them grow <laughs> um, and you can also cut the ends off and propagate them into other plants to share with your friends so that's plus and you know basil and mint are really like weeds <laughs> to grow you know just cut them and they grow back really fast and you know basil you can root them in water as well so just because something doesn't work out the first time doesn't mean it's then like okay. everyone takes, yeah, <laughs> has their own journey. <laughs> yeah. All right. Well, you definitely have inspired me to take it, um, to, you know, keep trying, um, and keep, keep learning. And I think that that was a powerful thing you said is that it's, you just need to like learn more. And like, mm -hmm. I love learning, like I love learning about stigma and, you know, all these other areas, but I've, I've never really invested as much time in learning about plants. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I think like, even for people that are trying to support people with narcolepsy, like my parents and my partner still make mistakes sometimes because we're just human, you know, but the main thing is that they still recognize, I still recognize that they're trying and, you know, and it's hard, you know, when you have day-to-day -day stress and everyone is tired, but uh, yeah, recognizing that you're going to make mistakes sometimes and it's just a journey that you're going to have to take together. Yeah, that's a beautiful point. 
we're all just doing our best too at times. So, yeah. well, um, I guess with that, let's uh, go ahead and just say thank you again to Rachel. Thanks, Thanks again, for having Rachel. me. Yeah, of thank course. you. Bye. The Project Sleep Podcast is produced by Carver Sound Productions. For more information on podcast production services, visit carversoundproductions.com.